Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I'm honored to welcome the president of Wall Builders, Tim Barton. How are you, Tim? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Now, your father, David, founded the organization for which you are now the president, the organization Wall Builders. Would you please recap, Tim Barton, your own journey to the position that you now have? Absolutely. So I'm nearly 40 now, and my parents started Wall Builders back in the late 80s. And and so I think 88 is when we were doing Wall Builders full time. Uh, I think I was six years old. Um, and so I remember when my dad first started doing a lot of traveling and just, it, I mean, for him, he was discovering so much stuff about America's history and some of the Christian heritage and, and really discovering a lot of things that he thought he knew growing up were not accurate. He'd been lied to on some level. And so as he started getting invitations to travel and speak, he realized that he could be gone a lot and he didn't want to leave the family. So he got a 15 passenger van. And so from six years old, we, I, my memories are in a 16 or 15 passenger van where we literally would drive from event to event, uh, state to state, um, where incredibly late nights on the road going from one town to another. And so uh, over time, we ended up retiring three different 15 passenger vans at over 300,000 miles each. Uh, and so, you know, people talk about sometimes uh, homeschooling and they ask where you homeschooled and, and that's not even accurate. I was actually van schooled because that, that was my home. We, uh, growing up, we spent more time away from home than home for sure. I remember there were some years that we were gone for over 11 months of the year on the road. Um, and so even as a, as a native Texan and someone who I, I love Texas, a lot of Texan pride, I don't necessarily always have a Southern accent. And I point out to people, it's because I spent more time in other states than, than really at home. And so as we traveled a lot growing up, by the time I was 13, I had been in all 50 states. And really the reason it took that long was because of Alaska and Hawaii. Um, but by the time I was 16, I'd been to all 50 states at least twice. And so just growing up, I was inundated by uh, the traveling, but really just getting to see so much of the incredible nature of America. Uh, my, my wife is... Uh, a, a military brat. Her dad uh, was stationed over in Germany, uh, married a German lady. And so my wife is half German and, and she spent several years as a child over in Europe. And so she'll tell me all the time, we need to go to Europe and spend time in Europe. And I would tell her, right, you've only seen like three states of America. I'm telling you, America has so many incredible, beautiful things. We don't need to go to Europe to see awesome things. America's got those things. So as a kid growing up, I, I really was endeared to America. I really loved uh, so much of the landscape, but also the history we were learning uh, along the way where I, I'm so blessed that growing up, we didn't just have textbooks to learn history. We would stop at, at national parks or battlefields or whatever the case was around the nation. And, and we would learn the story of America on location based on what had happened in that specific spot, whatever the time span was. And so uh, growing up, I really loved America. Uh, I did not have a heart to, to follow in my dad's footsteps for a long time. I went to college. I got a business degree. I really thought I was going to get in the, the business world. And uh, my heart and ambition was just to make a lot of money. And I thought that was a great idea. Um, and along the way, God really redirected my heart and my path, uh, led me back to where I was a high school teacher and a coach uh, for several years. And one summer, I was also working at a church. I was a youth director. And one summer, I took my kids to a, a youth camp, a program, and they had different speakers throughout the day. And the guy leading the the more or less summer camp asked if I'd be willing to, to give a, a talk about the Christian heritage of our nation. This was the first time 
anyone had ever asked me to talk about the Christian heritage of America. And I told them, I've never given one of these talks, but I've heard like a million of them. So I'm, I'm pretty sure I can come up with something. Uh, and, and, and I did a talk that summer. It ended up being really successful. I had a lot of the other individuals, pastors who were there saying, man, that was so awesome. Would you be willing to come share with my church? And so I ended up getting booked that summer, just telling the same story over and over. And I really enjoyed it. And my dad said, hey, you know, would you be interested in coming and, and just maybe even work for Wobblers? You can just do, you know, these talks full time and you can help do research and writing projects. And for the first time in my life, it didn't seem like a bad idea. And that was about 12 years ago, maybe 13 years ago now um, that I came over. And so uh, since I've been at Wobblers now, it's just been the, the journey of doing a lot of research, a lot of exploring for myself. And over time, just kind of stepped into the position where uh, I was leading our staff and then helping on writing projects and books. Uh, and so where now I'm kind of by default, the president, and really it gives my dad some freedom to, to do a little bit more of what he wants to do. Well, I run a lot of the day-to-day -day operations, but it's still very much, we're working in tandem. Um, this is not at all a, a takeover where I'm trying to, you know, remove the old man, so to speak. Oh my gosh, no, I wouldn't want to do any of this without my dad. Uh, so right now it's just a really a great blessing for me that he and I get to work together on a lot of these projects, trying to reclaim and retell the story of American history. That is great. And you guys, I know, do work together just today. You had another uh, live broadcast, right, for uh, Wall Builders Radio. Yes. Uh, so, and by the way, listeners, uh, if you haven't picked up an already, uh, Tim is an excellent speaker. And I've heard him a couple of times given presentations about specific topics related to our godly heritage and to current events and how their historical context applies. And I promise you, they are loaded with facts and relevant information, uh, which is why I asked him to join me today. Uh, he's got a lot to share. Now, a lot of it is about history, Tim, and you are a historian, even if you were not interested in history a lot. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you understand, as I also appreciate, the importance of proper historical understanding and knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now, George Orwell cautioned everybody in this really chilling novel, 1984, this often quoted, but maybe not internalized and understood message. He said, quote, who controls the past controls the future and who controls the present controls the past, unquote. Now he was warning of totalitarians using right. revisionist history to manipulate and to control people. And we Correct. see that happening, Tim Barton, right now, today, leftists in America are doing this. We're watching it unfold. What can we citizens who love America do to defend against revisionist history? Uh, well, I mean, Clay, you, you're exactly right. There, there's arguably not been a more crucial time in American history uh, for, for Americans to learn the truth of our own past. And we also haven't seen the distortions and lies being told on the level like they are right now. When, when you look at things like critical race theory being taught in schools, when you look at the 1619 project, that's been incredibly historically debunked, shown to be so flawed and inaccurate. And yet, because of the money behind it, because of the organizations behind it, it's now being used in thousands of public schools, literally all 50 states have schools that are using the 1619 project as their history curriculum. Uh, you have states changing their entire standards. So that they can promote this nonsense. It's, it's something we definitely are seeing. You know, one of the things, um, just from my own experience, Clay, when, when I first came on at Wall Builders, um, just like today, you know, there's critics of people who are 
just wanting to silence voices that would have a differing point of view. And, and oftentimes they want to silence the truth. One of the things that is a, a, a pretty interesting thought is that truth is not scared of questions, right? Tr truth is not trying to silence opposition because it's not intimidated. It's not insecure. Truth knows what truth is. It's lies that try to silence questions. It's lies that try to silence opposition because they don't want to be exposed for the lie. But when I was growing up, uh, periodically, there would be people who would write really nasty things about my dad, about wall builders, uh, and, and just how we were being so dishonest and inaccurate, right? all these accusations that are there. And when I first came on at Wall Builders, I, I really was kind of grieved internally about that, people saying these things. And really, the thought came to me that, you know, so many people are saying some of these similar things, like, I, I wonder, is, is there truth in this? Like, could my dad actually be making up some of this history? And so what I did was I decided I wanted to, I wanted to, to, to read for myself. So I started going back to some of these original documents that my dad was quoting, that people said he was misquoting. And I just started reading the original documents and I realized, wow, Actually, what he's saying is correct. And all these people that are, are accusing him of being a fake historian or of misrepresenting history or lying about American history, et cetera, they just have never read these original documents. And this is something that I think is, is where we are today in America is for far too long, people have just listened to voices they trusted whether it was a, a news outlet, whether it was a politician or a, a professor, a teacher, sometimes even a pastor, right? So somebody says something and it's somebody that we know and love and trust and we just took their word for it. And the problem is we've just taken way too many people's word for what was true for far too long and not enough of us have done the actual research to say what is actually true. And this is something that we have now started telling people frequently over the last couple of years is anytime we give a, a lecture or presentation, we say, hey, please don't take my word for anything I'm telling you. Go back and look it up for yourself. And again, the reason we can say that is because truth is not insecure. We know what we are saying. We know where it's documented. We know how to find it. And we know you will find it if you pursue truth. But because people, it, it's more convenient to allow somebody to tell you something. It's more convenient to have somebody else do the work, do the research, and, and you just take their word for it. But because we've taken the word of too many people for far too long, this is where America is today. That, that people are actually believing in this nonsense of critical race theory that like the 1619 Project espouses that America was founded to protect and preserve the institution of slavery. Like it's utter nonsense, but there are people who believe that because in America, we've learned that we should just take the word of whoever's in charge. We, we should just believe whatever we're told. And this is why what George Orwell wrote and, and what now seems to be this prophetic novel, 1984, he was exactly right that whoever is controlling the narrative will control the direction, the future of the nation, because if they can make you think America is fundamentally evil and, and systemically racism or systemically racist and, and, and the flaws of the nation, if you make, if they can make you think America was fundamentally evil, then they can make you think that we should no longer live under the constitution anymore. Because if the founding fathers were all racist, big and slaveholders, then what they did was really racist and it was evil. Therefore, we shouldn't honor the founding fathers. We shouldn't keep the constitution and we should just change the entire system of government and, and even the accusation that the, the free market or that capitalism is, is rooted in racism and, and instead of like this notion of meritocracy or hard work or ingenuity or creativity, that they, that's what gets rewarded. This whole narrative is being shifted and changed. And again, it's because people have not done the research for themselves. We, we've been so lazy that we just took somebody's word for it. And unfortunately, a lot of the people whose word we were trusting, they were being dishonest and they were lying to us. And that's why we're seeing the results we are seeing in America today. Yes, sir. Now, that is a rich answer, Tim Barton. Thank you. There's a lot of jumping off points there that we could talk about, but just briefly about the idea of trusting the current source. I observe just recently the changing of definitions of terms. Now, Orwell actually predicted this too. He called it the New Speak Dictionary. 
They eradicated words that they didn't like, and they redefined words to the way that they wanted them to be. And in our time, within the past couple of years, we've seen the definition of vaccine redefined. We've seen the definition of anti-vaxxer redefined to shut people up. So anti-vaxxer used to be specifically folks who were like paranoid about the effects of uh, shots or Uh, any sort of introduction of yeah all vaccines uh and they changed it in light of the messenger rna shots that are out now and are being pushed to say anyone who opposes a mandate for everyone to take a shot is now considered an anti-vaxxer and you should hate their guts well that's just goofy but they actually changed the definition and tried right. to convince people it was always so. The way Orwell always put it, uh, we have always been at war with Eurasia and never with East Asia. And so it was, except yesterday it was the opposite. Just crazy. Uh, telling people blatant lies and the bolder the yeah. lie, the more people would believe it. Well, regarding the uh, the contention from 1619 that America was founded as a slaveocracy, uh, I contend, and I think it's provable, that America, since its founding, has been the most anti-slavery nation in the history of the world. Am I justified in such a claim? And could you help me back that up? Uh, Yeah, you are 100% justified in that claim. And again, the only reason people can make a claim uh, that would counter or go the opposite direction of truth and reality is because if you don't know history, right? When when you don't know the truth, it's easy to believe a lie because you don't know what's true. But when you know the truth, it's easier to expose the lie. And it's just that today, so few Americans know anything about true American history. And, and just right as a point in case, if, if today we look at the founding fathers, the modern accusation of the founding fathers is they were all racist, bigoted slaveholders, right? Like the whole of them, everyone, no exceptions, no exclusions, all of them racist, bigoted slaveholders. The point that I, I like to make when, whenever I, I get to talk with young people or college students I, to challenge this kind of thought, right? If we're going to say all of them were, now, first of all, anytime we're making an exclusive claim, right? If someone says all of them were, in order to show that claim is incorrect, I only have to show you one who wasn't. And then it shows that that claim of exclusivity, right? That that claim that's all encompassing was incorrect. Now, with that being said, I don't even need to go there first. The first point I try to make is if you look at the signers of the declaration, for example, there were 56 individuals who signed the declaration. I ask people, can you name five individuals that signed the declaration? Now, usually I'm talking to high school or college students, but it, it, it doesn't stop there because sometimes I will ask pastors or teachers or different conferences and just see, hey, who, who do you know? And almost without exception, I've never been in a place where any group had an individual who can name, or at least not an individual who identified themselves and right raised up. I've never had somebody give me five individuals who were signers of the declaration because what they'll start doing is naming founding fathers they know. And they're like, well, George Washington. And I remind them, well, he didn't sign the declaration, right? He he actually was the commander in chief of the military. Okay, Uh, Thomas Jefferson, yes. John Adams, yes. James Madison, no, he didn't sign the declaration. He did sign the constitution. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, no, he didn't sign the declaration. He did sign the constitution. And we just, they just start naming founding fathers. And, And as they name through all all the names that they remember, they only come up with two or three who actually signed the declaration. But And here's the point I make. I say, look, right now we're making the accusation that all of the founding fathers were these racist, bigoted slaveholders, but you don't even know five of the guys who signed the declaration. So if there were 56 assigned and you can't even name five, how do you know all 56 actually were slaveholders, right? Or were racist or bigots? And the point I try to make is that we are drawing conclusions before we have any base level information. We don't know their stories, who they were and what they did. And this is where when we start getting into the details, right? And I'm going to go big picture in a second, because as you point out, 
America really has one of the best anti-slavery records in the history of the world. But just to give the, again, to complete the illustration and the understanding that we really don't know as much as we think we do. If you look at the 56 signers of the declaration, it's argued today that 41 of them at some point in their life did own slaves. So if, if I acknowledge the number, which I actually dispute the number a little bit because of one or two individuals, but if, if we just say 41 individuals of the 56 signers of the declaration at some point did have slaves, the follow-up question I would ask is of those 41 individuals who at some point in their life did own slaves, how many of them freed their slaves? How many of them actually joined abolition movements or even better started abolition movements in their state to try to end slavery in their state? Because here's what is left out is the rest of the story. I, I remember growing up, Paul Harvey, right? Used to have the radio bit it, and now the rest of the story. That is what is so often being left out is we don't hear the rest of the story. For example, Benjamin Franklin was a slave owner. And yet no historian, no honest historian considers Benjamin Franklin a racist. Why? Because Franklin freed his slaves in his lifetime. And then Franklin works for an abolition society in Pennsylvania, ends up becoming the president of the abolition society in Pennsylvania. And so he's very clearly anti-slavery in his lifetime. But people today don't know the story of most of the founding fathers. Now, with it being said, it's also interesting that if you look at the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, primary author drafting the Declaration of Independence, if you go back and read the original draft of the Declaration, which we actually own two early copies of his original draft of the Declaration. So really, really cool stuff. Um, at, at some point, uh, maybe we can pull them out and we can show people. It's something, I mean, you can get online, you can see early copies of it, but these are two actual physical copies, very cool. If you go back and read the original draft of the Declaration, as Jefferson was writing all of the reasons we should separate from the king, right? All the grievances. Here's all the problems we have, one, two, three. And he just starts listing all these problems we have. In the original draft, the longest grievance, so that the thing that he dedicates the most time to, it's a huge paragraph in the original draft, it was about how the king had continued the slave trade when the colonies had tried to stop the slave trade and, and they had tried to emancipate their slaves and, and they tried to recognize the equality and humanity of these individuals coming from Africa and the king vetoed all their legislation. The king opposed every attempt they, they had made to end the slave trade and, and, and to stop slavery and recognize the humanity of these Africans. It's interesting. The largest grievance in the declaration was a grievance against the slave trade, against slavery and recognizing the humanity of these Africans brought to slavery in America. And this was something that didn't make it in the final draft of the declaration. John Hancock was the president of Congress, and he said they were only going to include in the final draft of the declaration what was unanimous in the convention. He said, because if, if any of the states, if any of the colonies have a, a problem with one of the grievances, it would allow the king room to come in and try to pull us apart, these colonies apart by their own separate interests. And he says, therefore, we must be unified in what we do. So we will only include the grievances that are unanimous. Thomas Jefferson pointed out when they were introducing the grievances, when they got to the grievance against slavery and the slave trade, there were two states or two colonies at that time that did not support that grievance. It was South Carolina and Georgia. And he acknowledged, they said that at that point, they had not tried to do anything to end slavery or the slave trade in their state. And therefore, they didn't have a problem with the king striking down laws of the other colonies. But it's worth noting, there were 13 original colonies there were only two that opposed that grievance. 11 were in favor of that grievance, saying that we have problems with what the king is doing in regard to slavery because we're going a different direction. And we know they went a different direction because after we separated from Great Britain in 1776, every single Northern colony began passing laws for the abolition of slavery. By 1804, every single Northern colony had passed a law for the abolition of slavery in those colonies. It was only some of the Southern states that maintained their position of slavery. But again, this is very significant. If you look at Massachusetts, for example, Massachusetts passed their law in 1780. 
Massachusetts was the first major colony in the world, especially in the modern era, in the world to do anything against the slave trade or against slavery, emancipating slaves. England ended slavery in 1833. Massachusetts passed their law 53 years before England did, and every single northern colony followed. In fact, if you go to 1807, March 2nd, 1807, is when Thomas Jefferson, as president, signed a law, federal law, saying that America would no longer do the slave trade. That law went into effect January 1st, 1808, but he signed it March 2nd, 17, or, or excuse me, March 2nd, 1807. England signed the law March 25th, 1807. So England's law was three weeks after our law. And America, the first nation in the world to sign a law banning the slave trade, America led the stage every single step of the way. In fact, if you look at abolitionists, uh, when, when slavery is finally ended in America, right? It, it's 1865, it's the 13th Amendment, it's official, slavery is ended. Every abolitionist uses the words of the Declaration that will these truths be self-evident, all men are created equal. It was the words of the Declaration that were the rallying cry for the abolitionists in America. But what is significant is it wasn't just the rallying cry for the abolitionists in America. Actually, it was the Declaration that laid the foundation for even the abolitionists in England. The William Wilberforces of England took their tone from the Declaration of Independence, which was the first governing document in the history of the world, that claimed equality between all people, regardless of gender or classes, regardless of ethnicity, America absolutely set the stage for this. And obviously I'm not trying to, to filibuster for several hours, although I could, going through all of the very detailed history about how America really did set incredible precedent of being the first nation in the world to oppose some of these evils. And of course people would say, yeah, but America still had slavery. No, it's true. America still had slavery, as did every other nation in the world at that time. But there were no other governing leaders anywhere in the world who opposed slavery before the leaders of America on a national level, on a federal level, or even on a state level. It was the leaders in America and largely the founding fathers who led the charge against slavery. Now, again, it wasn't every single founding father because there definitely were some founding fathers from some of the southern states who maintained a pro-slavery position throughout their whole lifetime. So I'm not defending every founding father on this. However, the vast majority of founding fathers did come out against slavery, did come out against the slave trade, and supported the work of abolition movements in their state and in the nation. And that's why America, unprecedented anywhere in the world, took steps to end slavery and the slave trade before anywhere else. America really is the best example, a beacon of equality before anywhere else in the world. Amen. Now, listeners, uh, that, that kind of information that Tim just shared is true, it's verifiable, and is documented by those people themselves in their own words. And Tim and his father and the whole Wall Builders organization have those documents mm -hmm. and an incredible library of original sources. You don't need Wikipedia that you could edit yourself. You can go back to the actual source. And these guys who did this stuff were not shy. They wrote down, this is what we're doing and this is why mm -hmm. we're doing it. And that's why it's so valuable, that resource that you have there, Tim, for Wall Builders. Uh, the original documents so uh it's the, the key point i think there is in the history of humanity no one had done what these founders did in this the land of the free it's unprecedented that's why america is in fact the most anti-slavery nation in the history of yes. humanity from its beginning now it took us 87 years in a bloody civil war to get it completed but the seeds were sown at the founding Due to time constraints, we're going to end the first of two parts of this interview. At this point, we will resume the second half of the interview with Tim Barton, the president of Wall Builders, next week. 
Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information and please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.